0: The time is now. Volume 5, episode 96. This is Employment Law Now. I am Mike Schmidt, your host still of the podcast and the vice chair of the Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor. Lots of stuff going on these days. We are in the middle of May. It's hard to believe, but here we are in the middle of May. I don't know who thought 2021 was going to be a slower year than 2020, but it's not. Lots of things going on, and a few things I want to talk to you about today. In particular, I want to talk to you about two significant cases worth watching, as well as two separate legislation and regulatory developments that have occurred. And then finally, I want to talk a little bit about what the CDC just did last week about masks or lack thereof. So let's get right to it and talk first about two cases that I think are worth watching. The first one deals with how the United States Supreme Court might look at social media and off-duty activities and the ability of employers to regulate either. The case is called Mahanoy Area School District versus BL for those of you who are keeping score at home. This particular case doesn't have to do with private employers, but I'll get to that in a moment. This particular case has to do with public schools and the First Amendment, and the right to free speech under the First Amendment. Again, not things that most employers, particularly private employers, have to deal with. But this case, I think, really goes to the heart of where we are in 2021 with the blurred lines between our personal lives and our work lives, or in this case, one's school life. And the fact that we are 24 seven having access to social media and social networking sites and the ability of social media to reach significant masses. In this case, the question was, can a school punish a student cheerleader because of speech that she made online, but off campus and away from school, even though it might relate to or supposedly affect school order, so to speak. For those who are familiar with this particular area of the law, you will remember that back in 1969, a long time ago, the Supreme Court ruled that kids do have a First Amendment right at school unless the particular speech is deemed by the school to be reasonably likely to cause disruptions in the school a rather broad and some would say vague standard fast forward to 2021 and in this case you have a 14 year old high school cheerleader in pennsylvania who didn't get to go and get promoted from the jv team to the varsity cheerleading team and she was frustrated and posted a selfie online not only giving the finger to the camera but using the f word to direct it at the school, at softball generally, at the cheer team, and a couple of other things. The school found that posting to be disruptive and suspended her for the rest of the term. The lower court, after a lawsuit was filed by the cheerleader, the lower court agreed with the student that public officials cannot regulate off-campus speech. There simply is not enough of a tie to the school itself and the case made its way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court agreed to hear this case and just recently held oral argument. So it's an interesting question. How will the court adopt today's customs and mores and social media realities and apply it to the traditional platforms Um, of speech and speech in the school, or as we might want to extend it, speech in the workplace. You want to balance the rights of people to engage in lawful activities or the rights to engage in lawful speech, while on the other hand, there is a recognized interest in promoting decorum in schools or for businesses to have the right to promote decorum in their workplace. It's very likely that the Supreme Court is not going to issue a very broad, overreaching decision and it just may be that the Supreme Court issues a very narrow ruling under the limited circumstances of this particular case and involving public schools, but it will be an interesting decision to watch to see if there are any clues in the majority opinion or if there's a dissenting opinion in that opinion. As to how the current justices of the Supreme Court view this very important issue because we are going to be continued to be faced with social justice causes again the blurred line between our personal lives and our professional lives and even though this case again just deals with school and school related conduct we might want to look for clues as to how the justices might view this kind of issue when it gets a case that does specifically involve a private employer and a private workplace. How much can an employer regulate what an individual employee is saying and doing off work time and off work premises? We expect to get a decision from the Supreme Court, in this case Mahanoy Area School District versus BL, sometime by the end of June. So. Keep your ears and eyes open, and we will certainly keep you updated on that case. The second case I wanted to talk about, and back a little closer to home when it comes to employment and certainly COVID-19, who who still isn't talking about COVID-19. And this is a question that's been debated quite frequently over the past year, and one that we've talked a little bit about on this podcast. Can employees sue employers if they contract COVID-19 at work? We have talked about how in virtually all states, the workers' compensation bar provides some immunity to employers against negligent suits. In other words, workers' compensation as a program serves to provide easy and quick access to employees to get workers' compensation benefits without really having to prove fault and go through uh, extensive and expensive lawsuits. Uh, and that's in lieu of filing a negligence lawsuit alleging that the employer acted negligently in causing your injury. So, again, generally, the workers' compensation program bars negligence actions. Uh, And the only way really that we're seeing employees try to get around the workers' compensation programs is to allege some intentional act or gross negligence or recklessness on the part of employers in not meeting their duty of care every state has a different workers compensation program so what the standard is and how much above negligence an individual would have to show to be able to get around the workers compensation bar you need to look at the jurisdiction in which you are operating but the other interesting part of this is okay that just applies to employees trying to sue employers what about third parties well even before the pandemic In the workers' compensation world, the workers' compensation program did not necessarily preclude third parties from suing the employer, for example, a subcontractor that got injured at a work site. They were not necessarily barred under the workers' compensation program in most states. But what happens if the third party here is very closely associated with an employee of the company? That's the next question, and that's the next question in this COVID-19 context. What happens when you're dealing with a spouse of an employee and the spouse claims that he or she contracted COVID-19 directly from the employee because the company was negligent in some way? Does the workers' compensation normal bar preclude that kind of lawsuit? Now, at least one federal judge has decided not to find an exception to the normal workers compensation bar in other words the workers compensation bar this federal judge has just proclaimed should extend as well to the spouses of employees at least under that state's workers compensation program the case is in california because of course it is and in this case the plaintiff claimed that her husband was infected with covid19 got it at work and even though he was asymptomatic brought it home and transmitted it to her and she got very sick from it it is undisputed that the plaintiff wife was never at the company's work site and it's also assumed that she did get covid19 from her husband who did get it from work for those of you keeping score at home the case is qcmba Versus Victory Woodworks in the Northern District of California federal court. Here, the court granted a pre answer motion to dismiss and dismissed the entire case early, making two significant rulings. Number one, that the California Workers' Compensation Program does extend to claims that a spouse got COVID 19 through direct contact with the company's employee, her husband. But separately, and the court went further than just dealing with the case from a workers' compensation perspective, separately, the court said that the duty to provide a safe workplace to employees does not extend to non-employees who contract the infection away from the premises. Let me say that again. The court found that the separate duty to provide a safe workplace to employees does not extend to non employees of the company who contract the infection away from the premises. And so, putting aside workers' compensation, because this plaintiff's spouse is a non employee and because she contracted the infection away from the premises, there would be no separate duty that was breached vis-a-vis the plaintiff's spouse here. What's interesting is that that might not apply to all kinds of third-party non-employees who do contract something like COVID-19 at the premises. Maybe they were at work that particular day with the spouse or with somebody else. Maybe it was a vendor, maybe it was a customer who did contract. So it's interesting whether this particular limitation truly does, and literally does, only apply to non-employees who contract the infection away from the premises. This particular judge did not deal with a situation where the non-employee can prove that he or she contracted COVID-19 while actually at the premises. So it's going to be interesting because we will absolutely continue to see this kind of fact pattern arise in other states and we'll want to keep a watch as to how other judges around the country are dealing with the issue both in terms of their workers' compensation programs as well as from general principles of negligence and negligence law. So those are two cases that I think are significant and we want to keep an eye on. There's also a couple of important law changes that I want to talk about, one on the federal front and one on the state front. Um, in what may be the first state domino to fall on local workplace safety regulation. First, the roller coaster ride that is the independent contractor rule on the federal level. You will remember, I am sure, because you are an avid listener to this podcast, that the United States Department of Labor had previously published a final rule on the independent contractor standard back on january 7th of this year 2021 with that final rule to be effective on march eighth, two 2021 it was actually seen as a way it was welcomed certainly by business groups and seen as a way of streamlining the process a little bit and simplifying the analysis a little bit by identifying two core factors instead of the seven that had been analyzed with the prior rule The two core factors were one, looking at the nature and the degree of control that the entity has over the individual's work, and number two, the worker's opportunity to realize a profit or a loss from the work. If those two core factors were not dispositive or an analysis of those two core factors resulted in different outcomes, then the new final rule provided additional factors to then consider. However, if both of those two core factors went the same way, stop right there, do not pass go, do not collect $200, the independent contractor analysis is over. But of course, political winds shifted direction after Inauguration Day in January, and right after Inauguration Day in February 2021, as you'll also remember, the United States Department of Labor delayed the effective date ultimately settling on a new effective date of May 7, 2021. So presumably it could decide, the Department of Labor could, what it wanted to do now that it's under a new Biden administration. Well, one day before that new effective date, on May 6, 2021, the U.S. Department of Labor withdrew its final independent contractor rule in its entirety. And even the withdrawal of the rule is now the subject of litigation. So we need to wait and see whether the Department of Labor is in fact able to withdraw its rule the way it has tried to do so. But if that withdrawal itself becomes final and we no longer have this final independent contractor rule, we are back to the drawing board to wait for the new Biden Department of Labor to issue an independent contractor rule. It will be one that likely goes back to much more of a pro-employee set of guidelines that rely again on a greater number of factors to weigh. We'll keep you posted on that. But in the meantime, so much for predictability and consistency. The second interesting uh, regulatory or uh, legal development happened right here in my home state of new york the hero act the hero act is another acronym which stands for the new york health and essential rights act and again it is obviously an important development if your organization has offices facilities or employees in new york but even if you don't have any connection to new york i believe it is a really significant development in any event because I think it represents a trend that we will likely see. It will not be a one-and-done here in New York. I think other states are going to follow New York's lead when it comes to enacting legislation involving safety and health in the workplace. At its core, the New York HERO Act doesn't solely address COVID-19, though COVID-19 is certainly and was certainly a big impetus in passing this, and it's certainly a big subject of it but it really was intended to be much more broad and address and prevent the spread of airborne diseases generally in the workplace. As far as the New York HERO Act goes, there are two parts to the act. The first one is the safety plan part, and the second one is the safety committee part. And I wanna give you just a quick summary of both of those so you know what's happening in New York and what will likely be happening over time elsewhere around the country. The first two components, the first of two components, the safety plan part, is effective sooner than the second one. It will become effective on June 4th, 2021, and it applies to all private employers of all sizes. Those employers must adopt a safety plan to address viral, bacterial, and fungal diseases that are designated by the New York State Department of Health as a highly contagious disease. Now the directive in this new legislation is that the New York State Department of Labor is supposed to work with the New York State Department of Health to create a model plan template. It's going to be broken down by industry and it's going to cover 11 different topics ranging from PPE that has to be provided at the employer's expense, shared equipment and touched services, surfaces standards, social distancing, quarantine orders, airflow standards, and designating safety supervisors at the company, among other issues. And so unless this June 4th date gets extended, employers have to do one of two things. They either have to adopt the Department of Labor's soon-to-be-issue model plan, or they are allowed to establish their own plan as long as their own plan either meets or exceeds the standards that the Department of Labor will be establishing in their template as minimum standards. One other thing worth noting, if your organization does not adopt simply the Department of Labor model and decides to enact its own plan, you are then required as an organization to consult with your employees on creating that new plan or if the employees are represented by a union or have a bargaining representative, you need to consult with that union or bargaining representative. Either way, something's gonna have to be done by June 4th. You're gonna adopt the Department of Labor's model plan or you're going to be enacting your own safety plan. Employers are gonna have to provide copies of the plan to all of their current employees as well and provide a copy of the plan to all employees new employees upon hire after june 4th you're also going to be required to post a copy of the safety plan in a visible and prominent location and if you have an employee handbook you have to include the safety plan in the handbook as well so that's the safety plan component if you violate that there are fines And under the legislation, there are fines of $50 per day for each day that you fail to adopt the plan. And then there is a fine within the range of $1,000 to $10,000 for the failure to abide by the safety plan. Employees also can sue in court as well for violations. They will be seeking injunctive relief for an injunction as well as getting attorney's fees and court costs if they are successful but they can sue in court if, and here are some limitations at least, if there is a substantial probability of death or serious physical harm that could result from the violation at issue, and as long as the employers knew or could have known of the particular violation. There's also an interesting provision thrown in there where courts can impose sanctions if a lawsuit is completely meritless And it was filed with the intention of harassing or injuring the company. So at least there's some thinking um, that employers should not have to face the inevitable tide of frivolous litigation, and at least this sanctions provision makes you think twice as an employee or group of employees before filing a lawsuit. The second component of the New York HERO Act is, as I said, the safety committee part of it that one is not effective in june but you have a little bit more time for this component it is effective beginning november 1st 2021 and this one applies to all private employers however with 10 or more employees and the requirement is that the organization needs to allow employees to establish a safety committee at the company the Safety Committee has to have at least two-thirds non-supervisory, non-management employees, and those non-supervisory, non-management employees have to be selected by non-supervisory employees. The Safety Committee has to be co-chaired by two individuals, one of whom is an employer representative, the other of whom is a non-supervisory employee and this safety committee is designed specifically to address a myriad of issues including raising concerns that the employer must consider and address when it comes to health and safety in the workplace reviewing the employer's safety policy participating in any government site visit or inspection dealing with health or safety in the workplace and there are others There is also no retaliation allowed for anybody raising a concern that either the safety plan component was not followed or the safety committee component was not followed. And again, it is likely that New York is just going to be leading the way here and that it will not be the last state to touch on this kind of issue and try to enact legislation dealing with Um, health and safety in the workplace. I will note um, one other thing here. It is very likely that there's going to be litigation, as there always is, um, addressing this new New York HERO Act and particularly the safety committee component of it. The question being whether that aspect of the HERO Act is actually preempted by the National Labor Relations Act to the extent that the employer is being obligated to deal with employees and, specifically, the Employee Safety Committee. Whether that is something that is preempted by the National Labor Relations Act. Uh, there's also going to be uh, some interesting developments, I think, uh, as to whether any part of this HERO Act is preempted federally by OSHA as well. So. Keep an eye on this not only from the actual New York HERO Act perspective and whether there are changes to this or any modifications to this between now and June 4th or between now and November 1st, but also around the country where you're operating your business to see if other states follow. Lastly, I have to mention, of course, the CDC's latest update from last Thursday, May 13th, where the CDC, I think it's fair to say, surprised many people by updating its guidance and saying that uh, it's no longer needed for individuals to wear masks or to engage in social distancing indoors if they are fully vaccinated, if they are fully vaccinated. Couple of caveats here. One, the CDC's new guidance specifically refers to the fact that it might not apply if a state or local directive already exists and continues to exist on the mask issue. So already since Thursday, you've had some states around the country say that they are going to follow this new CDC guidance and no longer require that masks be worn or that social distancing be had indoors for fully vaccinated individuals. For example, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Connecticut, they've all come out and quickly said that they will follow this new CDC guidance. But there are other states that have said, "Whoa, let's pump the brakes a little bit. Not so fast. We want to review the medical part of this or we think that we are in a particular urban Uh, environment where people are coming close to each other. We've got a lot of restaurants and bars. We're not so rural where people are spaced out. So we need time before we're ready to enact a no mask, no social distancing initiative. States like New York and New Jersey, for example, where the governors of both of those states said, we're not ready to follow it just yet. I suspect we will hear in the coming days, and the coming weeks, more states, maybe even including New York and New Jersey, coming around and saying we will follow the CDC's latest update. But until then, make sure you check, again, as I always say, in the jurisdiction where you are operating your business or have employees to see whether the mask, the social distance, or the other COVID-19 protocols that have been in place continue to apply or whether those jurisdictions now exclusively follow the CDC's latest guidance. So continue to wait as well to see developments as they continue over the next few days, next few weeks uh, on this issue as well. So, wow, we covered a lot here in under a half hour. As always, I really appreciate you listening to the podcast. I will continue to do my best to bring you all the latest developments, the latest trends, whether it's COVID-19 or more generally when it comes to employment law. Until the next time, I hope you, your colleagues, and your families all continue to stay safe and healthy, and I hope all of your labor is productive.